Amen? May God write it on our hearts, our eternal hearts, that we may not sin against him. Uh, Paul in Ephesus, that's what we're looking at this morning, the work in Ephesus. Later in this chapter, in verse 35, um, there's a, a town clerk that is living in the city of Ephesus, a leader that tries to stop a riot, actually, that we're going to see in the weeks to come that has formed. That riot wants to destroy uh, Paul and, the, uh, and wants to run the message that you just heard read in those 10 verses of the gospel, wants to just run it out of town. Well, in that verse, verse 35, the, the clerk makes a general appeal to the crowd, to the hundreds of rioters that are gathered together there, and says, men of Ephesus, you can see it if you're still looking at the cop- your copy of God's word, at verse 35 of this chapter says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? And that may not mean much to me and you, in its detail, but let me tell you, I think it means a lot to me and you in regards to the idea. He's basically saying, in other words, look, everyone in and around Ephesus, everyone in this area knows the common belief. Everybody has the same understanding around here, and you guys are wasting your time thinking else, you know, thinking something else. In Ephesus, in other words, he's saying, look, we all pay homage to the false god we worship, Artemis. Everybody does that. Let me tell you a story. So I, I, I lived in China for a few months, uh, sporadically different mission trips I went on, and uh, me and uh, my wife went, and I, while we were there, she's my, we, weren't, we weren't even engaged, actually. We were dating at the time. And, uh, but I met a young man named Rose, and by the grace of God, presented the gospel to him, and he was converted and believed. And some months later, I got to go back for the summer, um, and meet, I was there for a couple more months, and met up with Rose again, got to do some discipleship. We were on a bus one time driving out to outside of the bigger city we were staying in. We were heading to his village, which uh, was smaller, still 100,000 100, people, but, uh, but, but, but smaller. And on the way there, we were talking on the way about the way that the Chinese people are. And Rose was discouraged. Uh, his family were not Christians. He didn't know how to break the news to them. He, he had told them, but not in a hey, this has changed my whole life kind of capacity. Uh, he just really didn't have a lot of hope for anybody in China. And he was telling me, don't you know? You don't know. And he was trying to explain. But the Chinese, they, they, they just, they don't have a place for, for this. You know, they don't have a place for, for, for God like, like I've come to believe. And I stopped him and just challenged him and said, but Rose, what did you just say? You had no category for God. You just were lumped in wholesale with, you know, how you are. What did God do? He saved you. He can do it for them. And I remember encouraging him with that. I look around the great city of Nacogdoches today, and I know that many people will say, men of Nacogdoches, who is there who does not know that the city of Nacogdoches has hundreds of church buildings and that every good old boy around here believes in Jesus? Does he not? And I want to tell you this morning, I disagree. I disagree. I disagree with the assumption of the Ephesian leadership. I disagree with the notion 10 years ago when I was in China with the idea that don't you know, don't you know that they're just atheistic and non-believing? And I also disagree with the assumption the good old boy, East Texas believism, 
That God, you know, I, I'm, I know God has children. I'm his grandchild. Oh, God doesn't have grandchildren. I disagree with the assumption that surrounds me and you even this morning. Paul refused to accept what the entire city of Ephesus in this chapter knew to be true of themselves. He refused to accept it, starting with the Jews in our passage this morning, then moving among the pagan practices of the Greeks next week, we'll see, and then the following week where you to come and hear the word taught here at Redemption, uh, finally, before the whole city in the riotous conclusions of chapter 19, we see in Paul an example of biblical faithfulness that is seriously worthy of our acceptance and study for the next few weeks. It really is worth that. But more importantly, it's not just worth our study. It's worth our practice in life. How dare we, if we have the gospel, be hearers only of it in the cities we live in, right? This is a principle in Acts, but it's a principle in this chapter. Do not just be a hearer of the word who receives. Be a hearer who also goes and lives that word and declares that word in your city. As we study the work of God Almighty in this city of Ephesus, I think we need to ask questions about how we can be like Paul in our city, in our place, and in our calling. This is a marvelous chapter, and, and if we're not careful in our study and preaching, it could be a dangerous chapter. So I want to warn us of many things, possible errors and people have made even in studying and applying this. But as we look at these first 10 verses this morning, I want us chiefly to try to See and understand, but then apply. Apply in our own lives, if we can, the boldness of Paul, the clarity of Paul, and the commitment of Paul. That's our three points this morning, if you're taking notes. First, we'll see in verses one through three, the boldness of Paul when he shows up in Ephesus. Secondly, we'll see in verse four through seven, the clarity of Paul, the clarity, boldness of Paul, clarity of Paul. And then finally, verses 8 through 10, we see the commitment, the commitment of Paul. Shall we do it together? So let's understand and apply the boldness of Paul. The verse 1 of our passage shows what we call the context. If you study the Bible, you need to know where you are in the Bible. And verse 1 does it clearly. Verse 1 says, it happened while Apollos was at Corinth. Paul went through the countryside in the inland country. So we're continuing the story we left off. Apollos is a character you can go read about. You know, he's in Corinth. Well, listen, Corinth is 300 miles across the Aegean Sea from where we are in Ephesus. So we have taken a hard swing in our vision on the map. We've gone east and we are crossing in this area of Greece now into the city of Ephesus. Apollos was there. He was there in our last chapter. He's now crossed the Aegean and he's spending time with Corinth. And so that's our context. Paul has taken a different but more scenic route from where he was uh, in, in Antioch, and he's on his now what we call the third missionary journey of Paul. And he's doing a, a more scenic route and uh, coming in then on the north side. Notice his arrival. You can't miss what happens. Paul gets to Ephesus, he, and what, what does he do? He found some disciples. Now, don't skip this. It tells us a lot about Paul's approach to being in or reaching a city. He's already been to uh, Ephesus. He, he had to stop over quickly on his way to Jerusalem in, in the previous chapters. And, and when he 
came through, the people of the synagogue, the Jews there said, hey, we want to, because he was there on a Sabbath day with them, we want to hear more about what you're teaching. He said, hey, I'll come back. We'll get to that. But, but when Paul arrives in Ephesus, what's in view right here is, is he's found some disciples. Well, if you notice this with me this morning, um, the word found is implying something certain and something kind of committed, uh, a discovery of a thing is, is what's happening here. Paul approaches every city boldly, but before boldness comes prayer. And, and Paul, I guarantee, the text doesn't tell us here that he was praying, but we know every time he's been sent out in Antioch previously, uh, he's been prayerful, and we know that they were praying for him. We also read Paul in the New Testament beyond Acts, and what do we see him doing all the time? Pray for me as I go here. Pray for me as I go there. A prayer for Paul shows up in, in, in the city of Ephesus and just finds some disciples. This is one of Jesus' favorite words, found. When Jesus taught, when he was on the earth, some, you know, and, and, has, and had risen and is now in heaven in this passage, and in the time here, maybe a quarter century later, Jesus, 25-ish years before this, loved to say things like, hey, the kingdom of heaven, it's like someone who finds a pearl, like a beautiful ring, a pearl, a, a diamond, you know, a treasure, and they sell everything they have, and they get it. Jesus loved to say that uh, the lost sheep or a lost coin or a lost and wayward son are found. Same word. We don't doubt the clarity of what Paul finds here. It says clearly, Luke wants you to know, Paul passing through Ephesus found some disciples. Now I bring this up and I'm harping on this here because I want, I think it's connected to the boldness. You know, we don't doubt the clarity of those teachings of Jesus that I just talked about, do we? If we're in the church, we've trusted in Christ and we've heard him, what he says about the lost sheep, if that's you and you have been found in Christ, you're found and you know it. There's a certainty there. Paul's able to find people in the city that seem to be disciples. We shouldn't doubt what this finding of disciples by Paul means for him about boldness and what it can mean for me and you today about boldness. So let me try to explain. Sometimes I think we share our faith and we like to think of it like finding a place to eat. And if you've ever traveled to anybody, you know what I'm about to illustrate here. Recently, I was just on a trip. We were trying to find a place to eat. And, uh, and we were struggling to like all agree in the car. Have you ever been on the road? And you're like, oh, we'll just, we'll just like wait for the next town. And, and, and eventually you just don't stop because you're like, you only have an appetite. You kind of just, oh, well, there's a place, but let's just keep going. And, and if you don't actually get Google out and make a decision, right? And if you're married people, you probably fight tooth and nail about it possibly, right? But eventually, you finally do what you need to do, which is where you Google it and you realize ahead, oh, is it a really good place? Does everybody agree? Yeah, okay, we all agree. Let's go stop and eat there, right? And I think a lot of times we approach sharing our faith in that way, in the sense of like, I'm going to share my faith. I'm eventually going to be bold with the gospel. I'm going to make a contact and you don't plan for it. And you just keep bumping into opportunities to go and have a meal, to go and to, to, to have an opportunity, and we just keep going past it. And we, we ask, God, I wish I was more bold. And, but we really should back up. We should think like Paul. We should be prayerful. We should continue in a plan. And Paul is a guy who's ready. 
before he gets to the synagogue and works with the, the Jewish, uh, you know, possible believers he hopes there for three months, Paul finds these 12 guys. <laughs> if, if we want Paul's boldness, we cannot pass this fact. He found some people willing to listen. Let me show you the boldness. Uh, look at the sharp exchange in verses two through three again that you heard read. In verses two through three, Paul gets to the heart of the matter quickly, doesn't he? Here he's met these men, they're talking, and all Luke wants to report, it's a summary. And remember, Luke is writing a history, but there is some detail. And however, you know, we see the detail is that Paul evidently was bold enough to speak to these guys about what they've believed and to get to a place to talk about some very specific things. And he asked the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul's boldness launches him into this conversation enough to where these guys are saying words like, we believe. We believe in, in, in Jesus. We believe in John the Baptist and the teachings there. We believe. And Paul has gotten there in such a way as to talk about the essential things. Paul was bold. He knew he wanted to share with these 12. Now, we get no report about them, uh, you know, him showing up and them talking about the weather. Uh, we don't get any report about them showing up talking about the Greek games, maybe, that were soon coming to Ephesus or the Roman po uh, political environment that they were in, or their favorite gyro. You ever had a, you know, like a, a, I think that's how you pronounce those, those Greek deals. They probably didn't even eat those, honestly. Uh, that's just something we, you know, kill ourselves with at fairs. But they're not going to small talk, it seems, at least. It's not recorded for us. Do you catch my drift here? Paul's love for Jesus and then consequently a love for these means he wastes no time getting to the important matter of the gospel. He wastes no time. This week, this week I was meeting with my brother-in-law for discipleship, and we were discussing Muslims. He's gone to Africa before and worked with Muslims, and, and I've, I've worked with a few Muslims as well in regards to sharing Jesus with them. And if you meet a Muslim today, nominal or devout, so either like anywhere on the spectrum, you usually know about it in the first couple minutes. They are committed, whether it be familial and just kind of like, you know, common, not really a real faith they hold, but, but they at least have been raised in it, or whether they are devout, they will tell you soon. They will slip it in there as a part of who they are in introducing themselves that they are you know, Islamic, that, that they practice or that they believe this way. You could know a Christian today for years sometimes, and then suddenly all, this, all of a sudden find out like, what? You believe in Jesus? <laughs> I didn't even know that. I mean, have you, have you experienced this before? I have. I've personally experienced it. I can't tell you how many times I had friends that I let the conversation kind of go on and on and on, but knowing I wanted to tell them about Jesus, but I just wasn't able. We fall into this trap. We must be aware. Paul gets straight to the point, and it's not rude, it's bold. There's a difference. Right? He's not rude. He's bold. He, he is clearly talking to them about Jesus. Boldness brings clarity, and that's our second point. Now, let me say some things quickly, though, because what happens with boldness, and this may frustrate you that I'll, I'll take this approach with this passage, but you can go study it yourself to spend more. You probably want to know, are these guys saved or are they not? 
Well, I do too, and I would encourage you. You can, you can know. A lot of scholars debate. Some think they were already born again. Some think that this is the moment that they're born again. I think it's the latter, that, that this is when they're born again. They are baptized, and in, in the, in the accompanying sign of speaking in tongues happens. That, that's a theme in Acts, uh, not all the time, but certainly at times. Baptism in Acts is also you know, not as clean, clean cut because some people, in, like in Acts 10, are, are baptized and, uh, you know, and then speak in tongues and then they're, they're, they're not baptized afterwards. And there's, there's you know, baptism before and during and after regeneration when somebody comes to faith. But here's what I want to tell you. Before you get lost in the words that they say, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. You see that? I mean, that, that needs to be studied, right? I mean, they said they're of John the Baptist. Well, if you know John the Baptist's story at all in the Bible, that dude taught the Holy Spirit all the time, right? I mean, he literally said, hey, someone's coming after me that he's going to baptize you in the Spirit. <laughs> I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Spirit. And if these guys have any kind of, you know, Jesus culture, you know, for them it would be Jewish kind of culture where they bumped into Yahweh, they would know about God's Spirit. Okay, I, I tell you all that, not to digress, but here's what I want to make the point in closing here. Boldness in the word of God, when shared, it will topple any false assumption someone has about God. That's a key takeaway here. Whatever's going on in these men's lives, as they are working out their, their salvation with fear and trembling, they were in great need of someone like Paul to show up and be bold enough to tell them, wait a second, what are you calling baptism? No, listen, this is what it means to receive the Holy Spirit of God. This is what it means to be baptized in the name of Jesus. This is how to get your salvation under, with certainty and assurance, the word of God. Can I help you with that? That's how we got to meet people with boldness. Oh, beloved, listen to me. If we took this seriously, you know how many people you will talk to in this city that grew up in church that want to tell you that they love Jesus because their grandma took them, but they hadn't really been around him much? They love Jesus, but not his church. They, they love Jesus, but they haven't ever been baptized. <laughs> they don't even know what that is. They're afraid because they, you know, they saw somebody do this, that, or the other. And you, maybe with boldness, could come to them like Paul comes to these Ephesians and say, hey, I hear Jesus. Let me help you with the Bible to show you who that Jesus really is and how you can know him and have a, a, a communion with him personally and how you can also have access to his church and the grace and the gifts that he gives his church. That's what Paul does. See, that's what boldness does in our lives. I had the opportunity to sit down with a, bro, with a friend that I was witnessing to over dinner here in Nacogdoches. We were at a restaurant, and we were talking, and he began to tell me, like, he had uh, grown up around the church. It was a Pentecostal uh, church, a Hispanic uh, church that he was in growing up, very legalistic. This church was was very, very harsh on, on, on like really hard things about, you know, the Bible condemning. And uh, in, in an unhelpful way, he was telling me about it. And, and I was listening to him and I was eager to share with him the gospel. And, and he was, and we talked about it. And, and we get to a point in the conversation where, um, you know, I was telling him, look, I think that what you've experienced in that environment, you're saying it was the gospel, but, but a lot of what you're saying about it is not what the gospel is in the scriptures. Can I share you? And I did. I'll never, I, I remember he, he told me, quote, I have heard the gospel a lot, but I haven't heard that after I shared with him that you can find in Christ forgiveness for your sins, grace sufficient 
to help you walk in holiness and it not be this, this legalistic thing that he had engaged with. Now, I wish I could tell you that he prayed to receive Christ that, that day. He did it. He had a lot of follow-up questions, and, but we were able to talk honestly now, finally. And I don't tell you that to brag on myself. I need the boldness of Paul all the time as much as you will. But hear me. I'm thankful, and you should be, and we all should be in this if we are trusting Christ for the opportunities we have to get to maybe line someone out. If you've had your own faith lined out, you know how encouraging it is, and you know how you should do it. We need the boldness of Paul. Paul shows up, and the Holy Spirit affirms what happens. These men are baptized, understanding and applying it. You know, uh, Paul was bold. But what did that boldness do? Well, second point, it led to clarity. Right? It led to clarity. Look at the clarity of Paul. Let's read 4 through 7 again uh, since we've been away from it. I think even as it stands here as, as a text, it needs to be read because it gives us more clarity. Paul said, John baptized, that's John the Baptist. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Powerful moment here, uh, right, of God. I mean, a powerful moment of God. God working mightily through Paul. Uh, for the first time in this city, uh, in this kind of way, I mean, it's amazing to read. Paul's so clear. Uh, the response is so clear. Well, if that's true, then why do we get uncomfortable reading this and thinking about trying to understand it this morning? Well, many, I think, have wrongly looked to this passage. Many have wrongly taken the principles in this passage and said, you must have this kind of response to the Spirit of God or you're not saved. It's an error. It's a heresy known as the second blessing of the Holy Spirit. Some who teach this would point to this passage as a key passage to say that in order to be saved, you must have this accompanying sign, this you know, speaking in tongues chiefly and the, this manifestation, the second blessing. Some would teach that. They would teach it wrongly. That, that's adding to the gospel of grace. It's adding to the salvation by faith alone and Christ alone. So it is wrong. Many others, however, have wrongly attempted to step down from that blatant lie and said that you, you may be saved, but you, should, you, know, you shouldn't have confidence in your salvation if you're not experiencing it like this moment. You see the downgrade there? This, that, that is so dangerous and leads to heresy so quickly, if entertained, that I do want to boldly refute it as well. It's not an accurate uh, understanding or application of this text. If we are to apply this text and get the clarity from it, we need to understand it. Um, and so to understand it, let me just give you some thoughts about it. There is only uh, you know, one example in the whole Bible of rebaptism. This is it. <laughs> this is it. So somebody's been baptized, and now they're being baptized again. So that tells us these men, uh, though familiar with Jesus' story are so confused in their conclusions that obedience to the first command that Jesus gave to a follower of his was necessary. So there was enough confusion here, personally in them, clearly, and in Paul, as he evaluates this situation, mind you, as an apostle, 
and, and enough for us to conclude that it was necessary then that these men be baptized. Verse five, on hearing this. You see that? Hearing what? You need to ask yourself, hearing what? Well, that, that verse four said that, that they should repent. They should do what John taught, right? John had taught that they should repent and follow God, believe in the Lord, trust in Jesus to come. The one who John was preparing the world for has come in Jesus. That's what they were hearing. It says in verse five, right, on hearing this, we don't lack clarity at this point or moving forward. There's a second thing to note about this passage. This is the last time it's mentioned in Acts of speaking in tongues. So we still, we're not done, right? I mean, we still have lots of chapters. Paul will witness to a lot of people and people will get saved. But in the last work of a city, this is kind of the last city focus we have in the book of Acts. We'll hear about God's work in other cities, but this is the kind of the last come in, set up, plant a church, it's healthy, leave situation. So you need to note that because Acts has a pattern which is important. Matter of fact, accurate way of understanding tongues in this book, it shows us that the Spirit does not uh, always bestow them, but rather they happen in accordance in the book with an apostolic authority. That is, Paul's an apostle. He's around the other apostles. When, when, the, when, when these other times are happening, the apostles are close or close behind. <laughs> Remember Philip in Acts 8? And the Spirit fell on them, and they spoke in tongues. And who showed up? Peter and John to assess things. Or Cornelius with Peter. There's a, there's a direction that tongues gives in the book of Acts to the certainty of what God is doing, right? It's not the other way around. It's not, I need to do this thing so that I can have certainty. It's like, no, God is doing the thing, and then the tongues come. That's what happens in the book of Acts. And I bring that up for the clarity here because so many have misappropriated this text by saying that you need to see explosions of, of power in your faith or question it, you may not have faith. What a, what a horrible, horrible, unbiblical reality. That's not true. Instead, what is true is that Boldness in Paul led to clarity in this moment. And though the accompanying sign of, of, of tongues and prophecy happened, it happened, what happened before? Well, look, beloved, I tried to show you. I want to show you again. John baptized with what? Repentance. That's what's happened. It's amazing. These men have repented of their sins. They're trusting Jesus. They've been baptized in the name of Jesus. Just like Jesus said. This is the emphasis that we need to see. This action indicates the importance of Paul's work by paralleling it to that of Peter and John. Which if you'll just step away from this passage and see it in its context, you gleam that. Now, why is this, is this clarity necessary? Yes. Is it boring? Well, to some, but to the church, it's not boring. To, to the church, it's necessary you go read Acts 10 again. You go read Acts 8. You realize clarity is needed, not the signs. Clarity is. The signs come to give, to give help to that, but the clarity is what's needed. Let's apply this and then move on. But if you apply the clarity of this moment to your own life personally, hear me out. If you're here today and you want such amazing signs in your life, you want to have peace and hope and joy and worship in spirit and in truth and do it truly. If you are coming to Jesus to get those things, you may not be coming to Jesus. And a very personal application for me and you, if we are seeking the sign, we may not actually be seeking Jesus at all. 
We would tell someone on the street that told us, I want to believe in Jesus so I can have a lot of money. We would look at them and say, your God is not Jesus. Your God is money. But when it comes to feeling peace and knowing assurance and having emotional highs and and experiencing the gifts that God gives to his church, when it comes to those things, if we are seeking those and hoping for them and trying to put our assurance in them rather than what they're to point us to, it's not saving faith. So I want to preach the gospel to you, a personal application to you this morning is that if you come to Jesus for anything besides Jesus, then Jesus is not your God, that thing is. And you need Jesus. And he can, he can be yours. Like, I, I believe when we preach the gospel that God in his awesome creative holiness created this world and it plunged its own self into sinful rebellion against him. You and I have inherited from our father, Adam, all the sin that we know and it is before us and it is condemning. The wages of our sin is death, right? But the gospel is is that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That God made a way in sending to Nazareth, to Mary, a know-nothing town, a know-nothing young lady, a virgin conceived the son of God. That he grew up, He lived the life that you and I could not live. That's a turn of phrase we use. And listen to me. When you tell people in in Nacogdoches, Jesus lived a life you never lived. They've heard that before probably. If they've been around church and they're interacting with you the way these Ephesians are going to interact later in the chapter, you may need to slow down and think for a second. What does the active obedience of Christ actually mean? Are you telling me that Jesus, who was, was tempted in every way I was and yet was sinless, Yes, I am telling you that. You know, what good is atonement in the Son of God if he's not the Son of God and the Son of Man? He's, he, is, he has walked the world you and I have walked on, been tempted in the ways we've been tempted, and he's sinless. He's perfect. He's lived a life you could not live. He died a death you could not deserve, or excuse me, that you do deserve. Again, that is a catch-all you will hear all the time. Do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah, I believe he's the son. He died for my sins. He rose again. I'm good. Hold on, friend. If you're here today and you have heard that all the time, Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died for my sins. And you haven't stopped to ponder penal substitutionary atonement? Penal, there was a legal reality and it is upon you. The wrath of God is upon those who will not repent and believe in Jesus. It is a serious eternal consequence from one sin. And you've committed millions. We said this morning, it's cosmic treason against God. And yet he chose in his son to swap, substitute with you perfect sinless Jesus hung on a tree like a criminal, like a piece of meat, spat upon, hated, as his soul darkened by the sins of his people for you? Yes. (laughs) If you look to him by faith, yes, he's atoned for your sins. He did die in your place. And he rose again. And you'll hear that, right? It's a catch-all, you know, every Easter, right? The only time we whip out the Gaithers, (laughs) Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. You, you, you living in the resurrection in the light of it? 
But how many people will you, will you slow down? Will you think with people, share with people? Will you today believe, if you haven't, that Jesus Christ laid in the grave, was there for days? Like people, his people were so worried and so fearful. He's not supposed to be like us in this. And yet he is. He's dead. They plunged a spear into his side so that water and blood flowed. It was a clear indication. He's been long dead. And they buried him in the ground. Just like you and I have put people in the ground. But by the power of God's spirit, God, who breathed life and, and, and spoke and all the world was created, God raised his son from the dead. They touched his hands. They ate a meal. They talked. <laughs> he spoke. 500 people saw him. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? I'm the resurrection and the life. He really is. He rose. And he ascended into heaven. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. People need to know this. You need to know this this morning. If there's one application from the clarity, not the signs in this passage, it's that these signs are screaming that you get your eyes on Jesus. That you know Jesus. That you believe in Jesus. And that you then can join in with believing in Jesus. Because there's a lot of hope that the church needs to get which is coming for three years in Ephesus, three years we get that Paul is going to spend. You need to know the final point, the, 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 the whole why we're doing this collectively, why we're continuing together is that he's going to come back. A huge application from this text is come Lord Jesus, come quickly. You know why? Because that's a conclusion in every text in the Bible. When you preach Jesus, we need him. That's a very big personal application here. You can have the clarity of these 12 men. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in closing, Paul's bold. Paul's clear. He's also committed. I love this. Paul's commitment. Look in the text, 8 and 9. I mean, he's committed to all peoples, right? Jews and Gentiles. There's everybody. <laughs> we have a wonderful example of Paul here being committed to the gospel in everything that he did. Everything that he did. Look at verse 8. It said that uh, for three months, Paul went uh, to those Jews that were in Ephesus. So he, he's met these men, clearly. Now he's going to the synagogue because he's under a mandate, you know? We've talked about this, Romans 1, 16 and 17, the gospel. It's the power of God to save, right? To the Jew first and to the Greek. And so Paul's obeying that for three months. Now, uh, clearly, Acts uh, in, or in Ephesus, uh, these Jews are, are nicer than previous Jews that Paul's met. Sometimes he's usually only there for like three weeks, and then he's under a pile of stones, uh, almost dead outside of the city, right? But in this one, he's there for three whole months. And though it ends somewhat violently, it doesn't end, you know, awfully. Uh, he is only being spoken of, you know, in an evil way. Um, and, you know, he's reasoning and persuading. They become stubborn and continue in unbelief. Do you see that? I want to show you something about the commitment Paul has here. Paul labored in love among a group, these Jews, that was actually growing harder rather than softer the whole time he was with them, which is a really interesting thing to think about. So there he is every day in the synagogues, Reasoning, it says. Persuading. 
begging <laughs> is the idea here, right? Asking them, please, will you please see what I'm telling you is in the scriptures? Will you see Jesus for what he is? And yet, what do they do? They grow stubborn and continue in unbelief. That's discouraging, I'm sure, for Paul. But man, he stays the course. How does Paul know that it's time finally for him to go? The text tells us clearly, right? The stubborn unbelief had began to appear short. The, the, you know, this, this continuing uh, and hardness has happened. But do you see something? Look at the capital W in the word way there in these verses. They began to speak evil of the way. You see that? Before the congregation. When that happened, we get the answer. He withdrew. That was enough. Right? The Lack of clarity in this situation for Paul now has ran its course. He, it is time to leave. They are now not just attacking him, the man. They are attacking the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ, the only one mediator between God and men. Do you see that? So when Paul happens, what does he do? He leaves. But notice who he takes with him. His disciples. The 12 dudes. This is likely the 12 dudes is implied here. So when Paul is with these guys who are probably like busted at the seams to be like, I, you know, really want other people to know. Paul's like, no, let's go do this thing. Let's obey God, right? Let's go to the, to the, gen, let's go to the, uh, the Jews first. And when it's time, he, he, he takes away. Now, I want to I wanna note these things because Paul was committed to these Jews until they failed to be committed to Jesus, not him. And that's a huge distinction to take away here. If you want to know how to be committed to someone, don't make it about you. Make it about Jesus. And be about Jesus with them as long as there is a pulse. You see, me and you, we, we share the faith. And I'm saying me and you because I'm very guilty of this with you. But we try to share the faith and we maybe share it to a point where we get discouraged. Or we don't really know how to answer a question. Or our schedules are so different, it's almost impossible for me. And so I ignore the burden to want to see this person right? And we slip into comfort and don't share our faith because maybe we haven't thought through the commitment. But Paul is like, I will be here every day talking to you until you clearly are rejecting Jesus. That's my last sign. I bring that up because how many of your family or your friends or your people that are, you're around that don't believe in Jesus and you are laboring alongside them and, and you're like ready to give up? right? You're like, it's done. Clearly they do not care and I'm going away. And yet then what happens? A little bit of interest, <laughs> a little bit of life. They ask a question a certain way. They think a certain way. What should you do? Be like Paul. Be like Paul. Stay the course. Keep preaching Jesus. Keep loving them. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep texting them. Keep asking for an opportunity to meet up. Keep bugging them with the hope like Paul has that maybe it's going to go a different way. And when you know it's done, you know how you'll know? They want nothing to do with Jesus. Now, how do you find that out? Well, you got to be bold and clear, right? Bold, clear, and committed. But there is something in this. Paul was committed to the Jews. And this is knowing what we got. We got the rest of chapter 19, right? So you and I, we know what's out there. Like serious revival, right? I mean, serious revival is about to come to this city, to these people. This church gets written about more than any other church in the New Testament as an instruction manual for me and you, Ephesus. We know more about its pastors. We know more about its uh, 
challenges. We know more about its ending in Revelation. I mean, we get tons about the church that will form. And until then, three months. Three months Paul labors. And when you put that in perspective of the mandate he's under as an apostle, that's serious. Look at verse 9 through 10. When he can't meet with them anymore, his, here's where his commitment takes a turn. Uh, he reasoned in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So we're done with our passage now. But, but you know, turning from that natural point of proclamation, a place to preach, um, every church planner everywhere is excited to say that Paul likely rented the, you know, the space of the hall of Tyrannus. And, he, and it's true. He probably did. We don't know much about, we don't know anything actually about this guy, Tyrannus, but he, he either lectures there himself so the hall is named after him. Remember, this is Greece. So he's probably a philosophic, uh, you know, lecturer who who does this as you know as a living, um, uh, or he may own the place. But the point is, Paul is going to set up. Now, listen, Paul likely rents the spot, and get this: more than likely, he preached from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day. So every day he's up in there. Now, starting during you know, kind of starting at 11 a.m., he kind of is starting his daily preaching of the gospel and making, you know, and teaching the word. Uh, He's doing that at a time when most of the people in Ephesus would stop working for a long nap in the middle of the day. So you got to understand something. Now, this is still very much an agrarian society. They're dependent on so much of the work they do in the farms and in those places. And so they're up with the sun early, working as soon as you can see through like squinted, you know, twilight, right? And they're working as long as they can after the hottest part of the day, you know, taking all the light they can before dawn or before dusk, okay? And so in between, we should bring this back, right? They just stop and take a huge nap, like a massive siesta. Now, there's other parts of the world that still do this. China's one of them. I'll never forget, you know, we're over there and we're like all gung-ho, you know, woke up that morning, we went and studied language, you know, and we're like, first day about to go hit the campus. It's like 1230, almost one o'clock. It's, there's no one there. It's, it's literally, this campus we were on had like thousands of students and like no one's there. And we're like, what? Like, this is the time we're supposed to share the gospel. And we, we have a conversation with the, the, the missionaries that were on the field and they tell us, yeah, 12 to two is going to be rough. Go pray, right? Just go pray somewhere because uh, they take naps. I mean, the whole city just shuts down. It's so frustrating when you're, when you're used to the opposite, but pretty awesome when you consider what it is. But check this out. When everyone else is taking a nap in Ephesus, Paul, every day for two years, cannot get enough of telling people about Jesus. And if there is any soul in Ephesus that'll come around and want to hear in their break between work, maybe they're not napping, he wants to be front and center sharing with them the love of Christ. What an example of commitment Paul has. Likely he gets up in the morning, does his tent making, working hard in that, and then he is worn out from physical labor and yet in there in weakness, and he writes later, doesn't he, to the Ephesians? Doesn't he write to them? that God's grace is sufficient in weakness. And Paul, in that sufficiency of his weak place, no siesta for him, he takes his free time and he preaches Jesus. He does it for two years. We know when he addresses the elders of Ephesus in the chapter, uh, chapters to come, he's actually there a total of three years. And in that time, the text says, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. 
Now, how did Paul manage to pull that off if he's every day up in there in the hall preaching? Let me tell you, we think pretty accurately that the first seven churches mentioned in Revelation, that the church of the Colossians, that Paul never actually physically got to visit, he says in his letter to them, but he did write to because he was the one who had sent Epaphras to them, Colossians says. Those churches, and likely many more, are founded during this time. You see, Paul is posting up, preaching, and he's equipping, and he's sending Timothy, and he's sending Epaphras, and they're going out. And and what's he doing? He's found in Ephesus, an epicenter where he can commit himself to the gift God's given him, preaching mightily in such a way that others who are there will get equipped and sent out. And, And Ephesus is transformed. That's why in this chapter, that's why the the economists are mad. (laughs) The gospel's ruining like everything, including their prophets. That's what's coming, right? But, But right now, what do we see? The whole area has heard Jesus? Yes. Jews and Greeks, the whole area. Let's apply this and and then be done. Paul was an apostle, okay? He's called by God to a task of evangelizing the Gentile world. You're not an apostle. Uh, Paul was, uh, was not married. He was called to singleness. He teaches on that. In 1 Corinthians 7, he, 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 admonishes, he admonishes people to be like him, uh, but to marry, and he doesn't you know, diminish marriage. But he is clearly kind of called in a way to this singleness. Some of you may be that. More than likely, you're not. Uh, Paul is preaching. He's standing up and preaching the word of God. Some of you men may be called to that. You ladies are not. Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a zealot. Paul was raised and taught in a a higher educated place, Tarsus. None of you are Pharisees. I'm not a Pharisee uh, raised in that tribe of of the Jews. And, And some of you are higher educated, but some of you are not, as Paul would have been in that standard. Now, why do I bring all this up? Because I think people read texts like this and they say, I'm none of those things that Paul was and therefore I can't be as clear as him and I can't share the gospel. Let me tell you, that is a pitiful application of this text. Let me tell you what Paul did with his time. Exactly what you can do with your time. He prioritized the study of God's word. He prioritized a a desire to see it in God's word and go share it with others. And in doing that, God blessed it. You see, Paul is not being blessed here because of that rap sheet I just listed off to you. And if that's the application you take from this, you are thinking wrongly as a Christian. Christians, all of us can testify to the grace of God. So go and tell people about Jesus. You have more free time than you think, I promise. And if you will sit down with anyone that is a fellow Christian with you and tell them, I want to be accountable to the Lord to prioritize Christ in everything, you will begin to witness like Paul did here. And it will be phenomenal, brother and sister. It'll be awesome. So apply this to your life. Be faithful. Quick note about these these assuming East Texans around you. So many that I talk to, if I asked them, do you believe in God? They're like, yes, he's first on my list. It goes God and family and studies, if they're you know, younger and a student or whatever, and job, right? And then fun. And they have a list. And they say, I've got, I want to put God at the top and I need to be better about that. 
And I want to encourage you that if you read this and you think, oh, okay, that's what I got to do too. I got, I got to prioritize. I'm not doing enough Jesus. I got to put him first. And you start thinking that way. Let me tell you, Jesus does not want to be number one on your list. He wants to be the whole list. He wants to be the whole thing. God is not just number one. God's the whole list. And when you begin to see that, you'll be like Paul in the hall of Tyrannus. That dude got up and went tent making. What's he doing? He's doing his job. He's preaching Jesus. It just happens naturally, right? Paul's breaking bread and eating, eating a meal. And what's he doing? He's preaching Jesus. This text tells us that Christians get maybe wrongly, assume, you know, we assume wrongly that we just, we're just needing to put God as number one. And instead, when you realize God needs to be the whole thing, that's, what's, that's Paul's example here. And if you're like me, you get discouraged because deadlines of anticipated meetings are coming or moving that you know you have to do is coming, or maybe goals like goods you want to reach are out there in front of you. Maybe there's even fun you hope to have. And often I think we hold these out in front unhelpfully to our evangelism because we, we get so overwhelmed with what we're going to be, we start to neglect to love God with heart and mind and soul and strength, forgetting that when we do that, that's when we love our neighbor as ourselves. I mean, Jesus showed up with the greatest evangelism advice he could ever give the church, the great commandment. Love me with your heart and with your soul, with your mind, and with your strength, everything you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. It flows out of that. Paul literally was doing that. Paul was loving God with all that he was, heart, mind, soul, strength. And as a result, he loved his neighbor as himself in Ephesus. And God blessed it, did he not? So this is the commitment we need. May we pray for boldness and for clarity and for a commitment like Paul. Let's pray now and then we'll sing of, of, our, of our crucified Savior. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for Paul's example here. Father, if in any way I've, I've gone on and on unhelpfully, will you remove any confusion? But Lord, for what your word says here, God, we have to labor alongside some who are stubborn and continue in unbelief. Father, before they speak evil of the way, we pray for salvation among the lost that we witness to. We pray right now for anybody that needs to make point two's application this morning, God. Will you show them that by faith they can believe in the Son of God, be forgiven of their sins, trust you for eternal life, believing one day you're coming back. God, we pray you grant such faith and salvation. Father, we pray as we conclude and uh, as a church this morning, God, that you would help us to prioritize you in the whole list, how we eat, how we dress, how we drink, how we spend time with family and friends in the world around us, God. May we be a people ready like Paul was. Help us to preach Jesus. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us first. Be with us now as we respond in Jesus' name. Amen.